0: All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the New Testament. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 6, 1 through 6, literally 1 through 6a. The first half of verse 6, we'll pick up the second half of verse 6 in the next recording. And let's just set this section in its context. Mark has just finished posting a series of snapshots of Jesus, where Jesus is performing extraordinary miracles, the kind of miracles that aren't just like, Ordinary little miracles, which would be extraordinary enough, but these are miracles that really speak to his identity and his power even beyond what they could fathom. The miracles were the calming of the wind and the waves at the end of chapter 4, then the casting out of the legion of demons of a man on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and then in some town, we don't know exactly where, healing a woman with an incurable flow of blood, and raising a 12-year-old girl back to life who had just died. And all of these extraordinary miracles demonstrate Jesus' immense authority and power. Nevertheless, in spite of such great miracles... Not all believe, And this especially included many of those who knew him best. And that's what this little episode in Mark 6, 1 through 6, is all about. Look what happens. Verse 1 of chapter 6 says, Jesus went out from there, there being the town in which he raised the 12-year-old girl back to life and healed the woman with the incurable flow of blood. And we don't know exactly what town that was, but it was some town. Uh, along the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. So Jesus and his group of disciples, presumably meaning primarily the 12 disciples and maybe a handful of others who were with him on a regular basis, they left whatever town they were in and they went to his hometown. What's his hometown? Well, his hometown is Nazareth. We know he's operating out of Capernaum for his ministry, but the town he grew up in, which is technically his hometown, is Nazareth. And we know from earlier in Mark uh, that Mark describes it this way, Mark chapter 1, verse 9 and verse 24, that's his hometown. So Jesus and his band of disciples are heading back to Nazareth, and Nazareth, depending on exactly which town they're at, but from the western coast of the Sea of Galilee, it's about 25 or so miles to the southwest. And Nazareth actually was a fairly small town, uh, a kind of an obscure town that sat up on a ridge overlooking the valley, a valley where some significant Old Testament stories happen. We've talked more about Nazareth in some of those earlier episodes. And I've got a short article on Nazareth in the study hub. Well, this is where Jesus grew up. Nazareth. These people are the people he played with in the streets as a kid. They're the ones he went to synagogue school with. These are people who were friends with his parents, Joseph and Mary, during his childhood. Uh, And here's how these people who knew him best in his hometown respond to him and his miracles and his teaching. Verse 2, and when the Sabbath came, so he goes back to Nazareth, the Sabbath comes. So it's Friday evening, Saturday morning, we're at a synagogue service. So when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. He was welcomed in the synagogue as a rabbi and a teacher, and he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom that has been given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. And so Jesus' reputation as a teacher and a miracle worker has preceded him to town, right? The, the word about him has been spreading all throughout Galilee. Now he's teaching there. They're listening to his teaching and their reaction is, Man, I don't know what to make of this guy. I don't know what to make of his teaching. It's incredibly profound. He seems very wise. We've heard reports of his miracles, and they're just not sure what to make of them. Also notice there, that last one, and such miracles as these performed by his hands. Well, they don't deny that he did miracles. They're just not sure what to make of the fact that he does miracles. Now, not only did he grow up there, his family grew up there, and his family still lives there. Look at verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So his family lives there. This is his hometown. This is where his family lives. This is where he grew up. Notice he's described as a carpenter in the parallel in Matthew 13. He's referred to as the carpenter's son. In other words, that is the family trade. Like he's a carpenter, his dad was a carpenter, Grandpa was a carpenter before that, right? Like, this is the family trade. Carpenter. He's just a carpenter. And the word carpenter is actually a general word that could refer to a stone worker, could refer to a builder of some sort, could refer to a woodworker, like who made benches and tables and furniture for things, right? It's just a general word for somebody who works with his hands building things, whether out of wood or stone or or whatever. And so he's described as a carpenter. And probably that's because for a good chunk of his life through his teen years and his 20s, he worked with Joseph, maybe once Joseph died, took over the family business, and he carried on the work. He was known in the town of Nazareth as a carpenter. And notice it lists off his family here, not Joseph, Because he has died by this point, but Mary, and we're familiar with Mary from the birth stories that are told in Matthew and Luke. So we know Mary, and we know those birth stories. Here we also get a list of his brothers. So we get James, uh, presumably his oldest brother, and James became a very prominent member of the Jerusalem church. Um, he's actually the most well-known of Jesus' brothers in the New Testament. Paul mentions that the resurrected Jesus appeared to him, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. And James, uh, by virtually all accounts, um, most everyone agrees that this James, Jesus' brother here, is the James who wrote the book of James in our New Testament. And James... Also, we know he died by stoning in the early 60s, around 61, 62. Even Josephus and the early church historian Eusebius mention James dying by stoning. So he becomes a follower of Jesus at some point, probably after seeing the resurrected Jesus. He was skeptical of his brother, didn't understand his brother, his brother's ministry, right? Didn't make sense of him. Couldn't figure out what he was doing since he wasn't acting like what they thought the Messiah was supposed to act like. James, as were uh, the rest of his brothers, somewhat kind of uh, skeptical of him. But James becomes a key leader and follower of Jesus, presumably because Jesus appeared to him after his resurrection. The next brother that's listed is Joseph or Joseph Jr. That's what his name is. Is Joseph is sort of a shortened version of Joseph. So this is Joe Jr. here. Don't know anything about him. Then we get uh, Judas, or Joseph more well-known as Jude. He's the one who wrote the letter by the name of Jude in the New Testament. And then his other brother, Simon. So four brothers, James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon, plus Jesus. So there were Five boys in Joseph and Mary's family. And then Mark also mentions his sisters. Notice plural. We don't know how many, but at least two, plural. His sisters are also here with us. And so, a fairly large family, a minimum of five boys, two girls. And uh, so, seven kids. Um, And though the Catholic tradition struggles to reconcile the listing of his brothers and sisters here with their idea of Mary's perpetual virginity, and they have various explanations of how to then deal with passages like this, there really is no reason to uh, think that these are other than the siblings of Jesus born to Joseph and Mary after Jesus' birth. That the real emphasis in the New Testament not is on Mary's perpetual virginity, but on the fact that she was a virgin at the time of Jesus' birth. I have a whole article on that that I've posted in the Study Hub. So if you're a member of the Study Hub, you could check that out there. So notice they mention, isn't his family here with us? Brothers, sisters, mom, aren't they all here with us? And so, man. What do we do with this? And look at their response then at the end of verse 3. It says, And they took offense at him. In view of their intimate knowledge of his family and his upbringing, they just can't bring themselves to believe in him. They just won't do it. In fact, the word offense is actually a fairly strong word. It's skandalizo in Greek. And uh, originally referred to like the trigger inside an animal trap, where you would put the bait on it when the animal goes for the trap, bam, right? It's triggered by the pressure of the animal's foot or whatever, and it ensnares the animal. That was originally and literally what this word referred to. But then in the course of time, it took on a broader sense and was used in other ways. And so the idea is not just that they, man, they were kind of bothered by him. No, it's that they stumbled over him to their own demise. Like they were ensnared and trapped by him is the idea. They stumbled over him. They took offense at him to the fact that 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 it ensnared them and it was to their own demise. They rejected him and his message. Well, Jesus knew that. And so look what he says in verse four. He says, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not Dishonored except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. In other words, translation's a little weird, but the idea is that a prophet's honored everywhere except in the town he grew up with, except among his own community, his own clan, and his own family. Those seem to be the different groups, right? His hometown, community, his own relatives, that is his clan in their cultural context and his own household, i.e. his own family, because even his own family is struggling to figure out what's going on with Jesus, right? And they just won't believe in him. And so they they took offense at him. He's not going to be honored and believed in by any of them. And so verse 5 tells us, On the heels of all these extraordinary miracles that Mark has just listed, on the heels of these snapshots of his incredible authority and power, here's what happened there in Nazareth, verse 5. And he could not do any miracle there, except... He laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And so Jesus couldn't do any miracles there in Nazareth. He did heal a few sick people. That's it. But he didn't do more than that, even though he has this incredible power and authority um, because of their taking offense at him. Now, it's interesting to me, and we're not, you know, no explanation is given, but it's interesting just to pause and think, well, why couldn't he? Like, he has the authority, he has the power. What's keeping him from doing that? And obviously, he did a few miracles there. He healed some sick people. Uh, Why not? Is it because somehow their faith is preventing him from doing that? But we also know that he's done incredible things when people didn't have faith. In fact, The calming of the wind and the waves, Jesus says to the disciples there, why don't you have any faith? And so, right, like, it's just interesting to wrestle with why, why could he? Was it more of a choice? Like, he could have, but he chose not to because they were so offended by him because they didn't honor him at all? Was it more of a choice like, nah, I'm not going to do much. I could, but I'm not going to. Like We just aren't aren't told. And so we don't really know exactly why it is. But Mark wants us to see that even though he has this immense authority and power, he doesn't do any great miracles or even many miracles, ...in the town of Nazareth because of their offense, because of the way they dishonored him. And then Mark ends the account in the first half of verse 6 by saying this, And he was, that is Jesus, he was amazed at their unbelief. Which, in some sense, seems to be connected to the lack of miracles. Like, uh, they're offended by him, they dishonor him, they don't believe in him, and as a result... Jesus isn't going to do or cannot do any miracles there in Nazareth. And we should pay attention to really the connection, this emphasis on belief and faith in this whole larger section in the way Mark has put it together, right? The woman in just the preceding narrative who comes to Jesus and touches the fringe of his garment and is healed from the incurable flow of blood. Well, she had faith. If I could just touch him, I will be healed. Uh, Jesus after Jairus' daughter dies, and the report comes to him says, Don't bother Jesus anymore, your daughter has died. Jesus says to Jairus, Just believe. Even In the boat with the twelve and the calming of the wind and the waves, Jesus challenges them for their lack of faith. This is a major theme of this whole section is this emphasis on believing. Believing in Jesus' authority. Believing in his power. Believing that he indeed is the Messiah who is going to bring his kingdom. And here, he's amazed at their unbelief. And what did they not believe? Well, it wasn't that Jesus was a powerful teacher. They're amazed by that. And it wasn't even that he couldn't do miracles because they believe in his miracles. They asked that question as well. Like, where did he get this ability to do miracles that we've heard about and we know about him? No, they believed he was a powerful teacher. They believed he could do miracles. So what is it that they didn't believe? Well, seemingly it's it was the message about Him as Messiah, the message about him as the one inaugurating and bringing in God's kingdom in and through him, their familiarity with him as a child growing up in town, as a kid in synagogue school, as just a carpenter and a member of this particular family, their familiarity with him kept them from buying that he could be anything other than a carpenter, anything other uh, than just a member of their town. They just couldn't buy that indeed he was the Messiah who was actually bringing in the kingdom of God. And it reminds us that unbelief is a stubborn thing. Um, It reminds us that just seeing miracles doesn't necessarily lead to faith. If someone is unwilling to believe for whatever reason... They won't believe just because of a miracle, right? Like when Jesus even rose from the dead, not everyone believed. Um, in fact, Luke chapter 16, where Jesus tells that fascinating little story of Lazarus and the rich man, right? And in that story, there's this moment where the rich man who's in agony in Hades, says, send Lazarus back from the dead to my, my family. And if someone comes back from the dead, then they will believe. And in the little story that Jesus tells there, uh, what happens is Jesus says, They won't believe. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if somebody comes back from the dead. Hinting at what's going to happen when he raises from the dead. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, which actually point to Jesus as the Messiah, they're not going to believe even if someone comes back from the dead. So unbelief is a stubborn thing. When we get locked into what we want to see, what we want to believe, and if something doesn't fit and we don't know what to do, man, unbelief is just a stubborn thing. And so here's Jesus in his hometown with his community that knows him and is super familiar with him. And their familiarity is actually keeping them from believing that he could possibly be the Messiah, that indeed this wisdom that he has and these miracles that he's performed, that indeed they... They just can't buy that he's anything other than just a member of their community. And what about us? What about us? Do we really believe in the power and the authority of Jesus as Mark has shown us through this sequence of stories that culminates in this moment where Jesus is amazed at their unbelief?